previously in the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. So we wanted to figure out what drives these racers to attempt this expedition through figurative hell or a literal high water. It's about going out there and competing and flying the flag for women in sport and in sailing. I mean, Team Perseverance, I'm going to say, is one of the amazing, it's one of the reasons that we made the race, right? If I make it to catch a camp, fine. But if I see something beautiful along the way, I am damn going to stop and make this picture and remember it for the rest of my life. And that's my challenge. This guy has kind of like taken over my life for the last year and a half. And so, yeah, there's a lot of connection between me and this boat. And what's it going to mean? say how to shrug it's just one of those things yeah those in this race are getting ready to face some serious challenges but what are those challenges and how will the racers deal with them Welcome back to the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. I'm Angel Mathis and I'm coming to you from the cold seas off the coast of Alaska. By the time you hear this, we'll be preparing to head into Ketchikan behind the fastest racers. This is a 14-part podcast following the 750-mile race to Alaska created and produced by Boldly Went Productions. This is episode four of 14 that chronicles the quest to win $10,000 in a non-motorized unsupported boat race through the iconic Inside Passage. To this point in the series, we've covered stage one of the race across the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Side note about how to pronounce this. Turns out you who are listening have very strong opinions about the proper pronunciation of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. I want you to know we hear you. The way we understand it, many locals prefer to pronounce this Strait of Juan de Fuca, and for many years I did too. Others who we've talked to acknowledge that the words are Spanish, therefore the proper pronunciation should be using Spanish pronunciation. However, to throw a wrench in the whole thing, did you know that the original Juan de Fuca is a Spanish translation of a Greek name that I have no idea or context about how to pronounce that at all? So I have two suggestions for you. The first is to stick with the English translation and say Strait of John of the Fuca. Or the second is to stick with the Spanish form Strait of Juan de Fuca. It's a lot easier to say. You say tomato, I say tomato, you pronounce your last name properly for me and I try to repeat it back to you exactly the same. You say Fuca, I say Fuca. So yeah, in this podcast we've covered stage one of the Strait Crossing and the party to celebrate all who made it in Victoria. Then we profiled some teams and why they want to take on such a big adventure. In today's episode, I'll be sharing a few of the key challenges that all racers have to deal with in order to make it to Ketchikan. While the winners may already be home cozy in bed, congratulations, you guys. Most of the racers are still out in the elements dealing with a whole host of issues. Today, I'll talk about some of those hardships to give you a sense of what makes this race uniquely challenging and to share thoughts from the racers themselves about how they're coping. 
We've spoken to lots of racers and conveniently enough, we've been spending our time traveling north with some crafty R2AK veterans who have been able to provide some great insight into exactly the types of problems that they have had to deal with in the past. Before we hear what they have to say though, it's worth noting that one really annoying thing racers all have to contend with is that the race organizers themselves like to make things harder for no good reason. The second stage of the race, for instance, which is more than 700 miles long, starts with a completely unnecessary Le Mans start, which we asked 2016 race vet Spencer Weber to describe. It's called a Le Mans start, and there's this car race or something in France called Le Mans, and they start outside the car, like across the street from their car, and the start gun goes and they have to sprint across and get in the car and start it and drive away, and that's the start of this car race. So. It's kind of a similar thing with the race to Alaska. Everyone starts up at the top of the stairs outside of the marina where all the boats are docked and then they ring this big bell and everyone's sprinting down the dock and uh, through the gate and out onto the fingers of the jetties and onto their boats and untying their boats and then everyone's using their human propulsion to get off the dock. The atmosphere is just wild. Yeah, there's so much adrenaline. So what I'm thinking is that it's gonna be actually a little hilarious because you have all of these people on the dock that are trying to get their boats out with their pedal drives and mm -hmm. it's gonna be a little bit of a bumper boat yeah well, ride. every year there's the boats who are in it to win it and then there's the other boats who are they've, they've already accepted the fact that they're they don't have any chance of winning the ten thousand dollars but they're about to go on this big epic adventure so you have, before the race start, you know, you'll see some teams kind of trying to schmooze other teams, try to get a better dock position, or, you know, there's some shenanigans going on there. And then everyone's up at the top of the stairs, you know, trying to weasel the way a little bit further forward, and because you can't leave until your whole team makes it down, obviously. And then everyone's sprinting down the dock to get to their boat, but everyone's moving at a slightly different pace. You'll have some people flat out sprint who want to get there and, you know, win the race, and then you'll have some people who are kind of just, they're not in a rush. They have 750 miles to go. <laughs> if you're wondering why the race starts that way, like many things in this race, they pretty much just do it because it's funny. It's true, but we have to admit that it's the small touches like this that make good memories, which may be why the race vets on our support ship got a little misty-eyed when they were watching this part of the race. Yeah, do you feel nervous for them? Uh, not nervous, just, uh, yeah, brings back a lot of emotion. You spend a lot of time preparing to be at the start line of this thing, both physically and mentally. I don't know. It's weird being on this side of it because the atmosphere is still the same. You're just not going to be in it. It's electric. Are you having some flashbacks to when you did it? Yeah, I think so. The excitement's definitely there. And one of Race to Alaska's most famed finishers, Carl Kruger, described it this way. It's crazy emotional. I mean, this, this race changed my life, you know? <laughs> it's whole, I don't know what it feels like. Stand up there, getting ready to go. 
stepping out, you know, knowing that you're stepping beyond boundaries and pushing things. It's a really emotional thing. Plus, it's just such a, it's like family. It's like the, Everyone up there is about to join the brotherhood. Yeah. The sisterhood. Yeah. It's a, yeah. That there is about the closest thing to family I've ever felt. As I was talking with Carl, you could hear the Victorians and team cheerleaders who were lining the walls of the marina shouting the countdown to an air horn that signaled the official start of stage two. You also hear the backdrop of church bells ringing in the noon hour in direct competition with some bagpipes, a perfect soundtrack to this chaotic stage start. Just listening is bringing back some really good memories. Enough about that though. I don't want to get sucked in by the nostalgia of all of that. No, we're here to talk about suffering and what makes this race uniquely difficult and the types of challenges these racers have to contend with. We asked one of this year's teams to talk about some of the most common challenges and how they were planning to deal with them. But these racers totally killed our vibe because once again, the people we talked to made it hard to focus on suffering. In this case, because they were totally adorable. I hope this isn't too embarrassing for them, but everything about Team MBR makes me want to give them a hug. From their name, which stands for MacGuffin Brothers Racing, to the fact that the team is made up of three brothers, and two of them are twins, and a friend who is only 16 years old. This makes them cumulatively the youngest team to attempt the race. Just listen to this audio and tell me you don't want to squeeze their cheeks too. All right, what's your name? I'm Callum McGuffin. And I'm Finn McGuffin. Keenan McGuffin. Duncan McDonald. Oh, one non-McDuffin. That must be awkward. Yeah, well, it's not too bad. I, I seem to get along pretty well. So, Did he ask you about how you guys are planning to deal with the cold and the wet coming up? No, he didn't. Okay. Tell me. So we have... So you're Callum. I'm Callum. Okay, this is Callum. Yeah, so we have all wool sweaters, which are kind of our team uniform, and we all have our offshore gear, so that'll keep us warm anyway. I think for the wet, we'll just have to get wet and endure. I don't, there's not much we can do about it. Mm-hmm. It's kind lots of fact. Yeah, lots of dry bags. Oh, yeah. And so, how are you planning your food out for this race? We have lots of canned smoked fish, and we've sort of made a schedule of what we're gonna eat on every day. I think we have everything bought for it, so that's good. And when you made a schedule of what you're going to be eating, did you base that on how many calories you think you're going to need, or did you just say breakfast, lunch, dinner, this should be good? Uh, We went for about 3,000 calories a day, and we planned out for eight days of racing, and then two extra days just in case it takes a little longer, so a total of 10 days of food. What's your sleep plan? So we have uh, shifts. What's it? Five hours on, five hours off, and we have two down, two up. So every person gets, uh, what's it, two shifts on, two shifts off. And then we have, in the middle of the day, I think we've got four hours on, yeah, with everyone up on deck, just so we're all there. We can eat our meals together and stuff and figure anything out that needs figuring out. And then we do have it alternating, too, so we aren't always with the same person, and we don't always have the same shifts through the whole race. Just get wet and endure is a great tagline for R2AK as a whole. Those guys, even if they're totes adorbs, they are so hardcore. Not many people could do what they're doing in their teens and early 20s or have parents who would let them do it, but they're doing it. 
Each individual boat choice comes with its own particular challenges, but everyone has to deal with one problem no matter what, getting used to traveling in a boat that has no motor. Team R2 Ake came up with one of the most creative solutions ever in the race, a handcrafted massive paddle wheel. That's right, that kind of paddle wheel. The R2AK website described it officially like a Mississippi casino boat, but without the steam power and gambling. We talked to them in Victoria about how that solution is working out, among other things. Tell me your name. Uh, team r 2 Ake. I'm Lionel Jensen. And so I understand you've got a, a special boat that is pretty unique to this race. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. Uh, we're the first people who've had the idea of building a paddle wheel for our human propulsion system for our boat. Uh, most of the boats in the race are propellers driven by pedals. And a few months ago, when we were kind of deciding if we we're going to sign up or not, we we're trying to come up with ideas. That's part of the fun of the race is the creativity that goes into coming up with your human power system for the boat. And we didn't think that we could get the pitch and the size of a propeller right. And we didn't want to just buy something out of a box that didn't seem like as much fun to us. A lot of the fun for us was just the designing and creating of this thing. But a paddle wheel was something we could wrap our minds around. And so that was how we came up with the paddle wheel idea. And it's worked out better than we ever expected. And so how does it operate? How do you make it go? Right, so we've got a crank set, just the bicycle pedals mounted to the house, and then 25 feet of chain to get that back to the paddle wheel that's hanging off the transom of the boat. We can raise and lower the paddle wheel. We've got a topping lift dedicated to the paddle wheel that's off the top of the mast. And uh, it's really sensitive to depth. So that's how you can adjust how much tension there is on the pedals. Just a couple centimeters up or down changes how much resistance there is. And so with a five to one system, we can raise and lower it with the person pedaling and uh, works pretty slick. So you just finished the first stage of the R2AK from Port Townsend to Victoria and some pretty big water. So did this work well for you? It, it was eye-opening. The paddle wheel did its job, which was getting us out of the marina. And then we either sail or paddle. We don't really motor sail. So as soon as we were out in the wind, we lifted the paddle wheel up out of the way. In the excitement this yesterday morning, we forgot to tie the wheel off. And when we started punching into waves, it started coming up and slamming back down. And the, the big disadvantage of the paddle wheel is all the weight you're hanging off the back of the boat. And I don't know, McGregor's have a bad reputation or, or sailing purists don't, don't respect them as a boat. But after yesterday, I think they deserve some respect because the mast didn't break. It took all the abuse that we could give it. And yeah, it did its job. The boat got us here. And once we got into the Victoria Harbor, we put the paddle wheel in the water. And you get to listen to that satisfying paddling noise behind you as you motor in. And, and it's a crowd pleaser. Everybody's cheering for it. And it worked out great for us. While those guys' paddle wheel is unique, innovative solutions to the no-engine problem aren't. In fact, the R2AK has driven its own idiosyncratic engineering niche focused on propelling large boats quickly using only human power. Cannondale bicycles rigged to propellers are standard fare on R2AK boats, and they come in a variety of configurations. When the boats are in harbor together, they look like a scene from Mad Max, Picture these modified boats bobbing in the marina just beneath the BC Parliament building, an ornate 500-foot-long neo-baroque domed building. 
The race almost definitely brings down the property value for the few days that the boats are parked in the marina there. Along with pedal drives, teams are making other innovative engineering modifications that are simple and hidden. We tracked down Bill from Team Narwhal to ask him about his team's secret weapon, which is an elegant solution to the challenge of paddling their big, awkward boat. I noticed in the Race to Alaska team brochure that you guys said you had a secret weapon. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you're ready to divulge that yet. I can show it to you, but you can't, um, you can't reveal it to anybody until tomorrow after the race has started. So, um, you know, we all have to have some alternative means of propulsion, right? And we have two mechanical engineers on board. Joel over there used to own a bicycle manufacturing company. So we have pedal drives that you can actually shift. And then the other mechanical engineer is also a rower, so we have rowing stations. But the problem is in here, the boat, which is 24 feet wide on its own, is like 36 or 38 feet wide with, you know, actual sweep oars on it. So in a harbor, we have to paddle with paddleboard paddles, but everybody has kind of given up on paddleboard paddles on a trimaran because you're either sitting down so you're totally ineffective or you're standing up on top of the float and you need like a nine-foot paddleboard paddle. So Mark had this great idea don't tell anybody he said hey why don't we stand in there inside the float and I was like great but it's super uncomfortable look it's like this v-shape right so you're standing your feet are kind of cranked into each other and it's just horrible so then he said well let's just put a little platform in there so that's just a piece of plywood screwed to a board to keep it stable and we can stand in there and paddle for hours wow and secret weapon and so that's going to come in handy when there's not a lot of wind right yep yeah, so the actual secret weapon, which you cannot see, is that in the arms, the the outer arms of this trimaran, there's a window space, and you can lift that up, and on the inside is a platform where people can stand and use these giant paddles mm -hmm. to make a move. Nice. Thanks for sharing that with me. Okay, let's get serious, folks. The race to Alaska isn't all fun and games. It's a real adventure. So it's like really hard fun and games. That means that there are real challenges involved. We asked some savvy veterans of the race about the crux points. Carl Kruger is a race to Alaska legend, like we just said, because he was the first person to complete the race on a stand-up paddleboard. Spencer Weber is a race alumni from 2016 who also managed to shoot video and produce a feature-length film about his team's experience during the process called Go Fast, Go North. And Zach Carver is the Race to Alaska film boss, so he's been zipping around the course capturing the R2AK experience for years. Carl finished the race in 2017 on a SUP board, and he knows the water as intimately as anyone. So Tim, the boldly went correspondent in the field, asked him his opinion about the biggest challenges of the race. They were on Carl's boat, Ocean Watch, and as you listen to this clip, you'll hear the motor in the background. Right. So we're trying to dig into like, what are the crux points of this thing? Are the places or like conditions? What's hard? You guys are all savvy vets. What do you think? day one it's the decision whether to go out into the Straits of Georgia or up through the Gulf Islands that's probably the, that's probably the one of the biggest decisions early on anyways which way to go so navigation navigation slash choosing a route which is something a lot of people don't necessarily talk about what do you think is the right choice depends on the boat <laughs> yeah. totally depends on the boat completely and, and what the boat's capable of and what the conditions are 
and the weather and everything and what, what crew is on board, you know, how long they can run, uh, you know, without stopping, all that kind of stuff goes into that decision. Yeah. Along with the challenges of the choose-your-own-adventure nature of this race, the length and difficulty of the course means that the race exposes any weakness that's present in your boat. I liked Zach's way of describing this idea. What are, are, Zach, you're a media boss, right? And so you've been to this race a bunch of times. What are some issues that you've seen come up over and over every year? Like, is there stuff you expect to go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> There's always stuff that goes. I mean, everybody, everybody has stuff that breaks. Every every boat, as far as I know, has some little thing that'll break. And we talked a lot about how this will find your chafe point. You didn't nothing broke on your boat. Nothing. What about your feet? What about your well, first? Yeah, year? I got an infection. <laughs> you got an infection. Yeah, the first year I broke. You're, board, you're yeah. part of your boat. You yeah, know, the second, the second it part. seems to find whatever's not quite sewn up tight and wear on it in whatever your boat is, or your team, or your crew dynamics, or something. It'll find something and start filing away at that, and, and that'll often be what trips people up. Um, but yeah, equipment failure, a lot of the older boats find that that boat was awesome sailing around the bay over and over, or around the islands, but when they go days on end in rough seas, it, it, they start to break apart. Zach points out that the course grinds down weak spots on boats, but the race to Alaska also grinds down participants. Spencer, who raced in 2016, talks about the impact of fatigue on the experience and paints a memorable picture about what his boat looked like when they arrived in Ketchikan. People over, I think people really underestimate fatigue. That's something I've, like, it's really hard to get good rest on any program and they really underestimate what that does to your decision making and to just keeping going and morale and stuff. Yeah, on that note, we were talking to Spencer last night about his race, uh, 2016 or 17, 16? Yeah. He said by the end you were just kind of like, screw it with a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> because of fatigue, right? Yeah, I think when you're running that low on sleep and you've been in the race for that long, a lot of the things that maybe mattered in the beginning, like proper sail trim, kind of become <laughs> secondary to uh, just trying to keep your eyes awake and try to keep the boat off the rocks and things like that. Yeah, it's very different sailing your boat around the bay, like around the cans racing and things, to a 750-mile endurance race. Yeah, I mean, not to out you, but Spencer mentioned when they finished, they'd kind of given up on bailing, so they finished with six inches of water and a disgusting yes. muck of food, like, coating the bottom of their boat. <laughs> yeah, we, we finished in Ketchikan around three in the morning after just a heinous night of paddling up current with these stupid stand-up paddleboard paddles that we bought a Canadian tire for $60. And yeah, we, we just spent like eight hours, or eight miles, sorry, paddling against this current into Ketchikan, and we were just all super exhausted and falling asleep while paddling, and the boat below was just completely trashed. Like, the, the floorboards were almost floating. We had brought all of our food in cardboard boxes, which was like a really stupid idea because... <laughs> The cardboard quickly turned to mush after like day three of just being completely soaked and all of our food just went awry and there was some spaghetti cooking in the bilge and yeah, everything was just absolutely soaked. The condensation on the on the deck heads just dripping down over everything, just completely, completely drenched. And you just get to a point where, you know, I can spend the time to tidy this up or I can grab a very important 30 minute nap. and you always prioritize a 30-minute nap. <laughs> that's, that's good life advice too, I think. As I said, Spencer made a film about his R2AK team that was named Hot Mess, 
and it's called Go Fast, Go North. If you like this podcast, you'll like that. So look it up. Speaking of finishers, we've seen the first finishers roll in for the 2019 race. Want to hear what they're saying? Curious why given the horns dropped from the front contenders? We'll tell you in the next episode, so join us on June 14th. That's it for today's R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. Thank you for sharing the adventure with us. Huge thanks to Race to Alaska for bringing this crazy adventure into the world and to all the crazy adventurers who are trying it and who are fodder for this podcast. Other thanks for this podcast are attributed to Uncruise Northwest Maritime Center, Spencer Weber, Carl Kruger, Zach Carver, Team MBR, Team R2 Ake, Team Narwhal, Tim Mathis, Lead Writer, Michaela Elias, Audio Editor and Production Assistant. Episode production is by Boldly Went. Also to Le Mans Starts, Pointless Suffering, Wool Sweaters, Chafe Points, Paddle Wheels, Secret Weapons, and Overcoming Challenges. If you're still listening, thanks. Get all the daily details about the race to Alaska at r2ak.com. Get additional R2AK content and reporting from our website or link to the regular weekly Boldly Went podcast featuring the brief and true adventure stories by outdoorists of all kinds at boldlywentadventures.com. Follow us both on Instagram and Facebook at Race to Alaska and at Boldly Went Adventures. I'm Angel Mathis, proudly bringing you this podcast from just south of Ketchikan with the Race to Alaska. Ignite your adventure. Funky Dory, why is everybody else in such a hurry? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll be in a hurry. Tide and wind dictates we need to be in a hurry. It but is. unbelievable, but that's the way it was. It used to be. Yeah. 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 The uh, yeah the boats built in the 1800s. Le Mans starts looked a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>